0: We're continuing our studies in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we come to Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 9, Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 9, and um, and verse 1. But all this I led to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God, whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, and the same event happens to all. Also the heart's and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that, is, that he has given you, "...under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil in which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge." But time and chance happen to them all, for man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building Great siege works against it, but there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. And no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Amen. Um, we know God will bless the reading of his words. Billy Graham, when he was over uh, in the UK in the 1950s, told the story about a policeman in San Francisco who spotted uh, a man perched precariously up on the Golden Gate Bridge. He was obviously a potential suicide victim and was about to jump. The policeman very bravely climbed up to him, risking his own life to talk him down. The policeman told the man that life wasn't really that bad and that whatever problems he had, they could be sorted out in a much better way than jumping off the bridge. The man began to go over his problems and 20 minutes later, both of them jumped. Well, Ecclesiastes is a bit like that. It's a miserable book and deliberately so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's a book that dwells on the miserableness of life. Throughout it, Solomon confronts us with the meaningless and insignificance of life. Life under the sun, he says, that's life without God amounts to nothing. It's a chasing after the wind. It's a vanity of vanities. It's insignificant and empty. Uh, and if you weren't depressed before you began this study in Ecclesiastes, you will be depressed after. Uh, and most significantly in chapter 9, because 9 is the lowest point uh, in the book. But then, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it is intended to do that very thing to pull the rug out of from under those who have a bright, breezy, fluffy approach to life and to force them to face up to the harsh realities of life. That you don't pack up all your troubles in your old kit bag and smile, smile, smile. That life is hard. That life is difficult. And uh, unless you uh, understand life from God's perspective you will be left empty and miserable. Solomon is looking at life from two perspectives. From the perspective of life under the sun, that's life with God left out, and then from the perspective of faith in in God. Every now and then, he brings God into the picture and what a difference God makes. He is deliberately forcing us to think about conclusions. Leave God out, people say. All right, Solomon says, let's, let's leave God out. Let me tell you what life is like without God. Now, that's what he is good doing again in chapter 9, which is perhaps the most pessimistic chapter in the whole book. It does get a bit brighter after chapter 9, but chapter 9 is the low point of the book, which is very appropriate coming up to that happy time of Christmas. So he looks at life, uh, and then he looks at death in chapter 9, and then he looks at life again with God in the picture. And we want to look at the chapter under those three headings, the uncertainties of life, the reality of death, and the response of faith. So first of all, then, the uncertainties of life. What Solomon is saying in regard to life is this that there are no guarantees, there are no certainties, there's no such thing as a sure thing. He lists certain things that we often think will guarantee our success. But in spite of those things, he tells us life is uncertain and unpredictable. He tells us, first of all, in verse 1, that faith does not guarantee success. Look at verse 1. But all this I led to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God, whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. This is the great goal of everyone, to love and to be loved, to care for and to be cared for. And here is a man, he's a Christian man, He's a believer because he's a man of wisdom and a man of righteousness. And yet Solomon says of him, whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. Only God knows. Who knows what in God's providence waits round the corner? We know uh, what we want. We know what we want to do. We know what we want to have. We want a fairy tale romance where we all live happily ever after. We want to be thought of well in our work. We want people to be our friends, but our wife walks out on us. Uh, We get the sack and we are dumped by our friends. That's life, says Solomon. You do not know if love or hate awaits you. It's in God's hands. And your faith may help you understand why those things have happened, but they don't prevent them from Happening. That's reality. That theology that teaches that the Christian will never need a doctor, uh, never uh, need a loan, and never need an umbrella, is as far as heaven is from hell in the teaching of the Bible. I remember <coughs> uh, leading a by team to the Isle of Man. And uh, there was an evangelist uh, in Douglas, and he was holding a week of healing meetings, and huge crowds were flocking to these meetings. And after the coffee bar outreach one night, we went down for an ice cream, and we were walking past this venue, which was in in darkness, and there was a sign outside the, the venue, closed because of illness. Well, that's Solomon's point. Faith does not protect you from the problems of life. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. So faith doesn't guarantee success. The second thing he says is ability doesn't uh, guarantee success. Look at verses 11 and 12. Again, I saw under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all for man does not know his time like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them here uh, solomon lists five things that people think uh, would turn uh, people into winners rather than losers but those winners turn out to be losers Solomon is saying that one's abilities don't guarantee one's success. Look at the world of athletics. The race doesn't always go to the swift. Those of us that are old enough to remember will recall in the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics, there was a South African, Zola Budd, who ran barefoot. And uh, because of apartheid, South Africa wasn't allowed to compete uh, in, in the Games. Uh, internationally, and so um, Brit- the, the UK government uh, rushed through citizenship so that she could run uh, for for Britain. And uh, the time came for the Games and the time trials. She was the fastest woman on earth, even though she ran barefoot. Uh, but during the race, she bumps into her other great contender, her competitor, Mary Decker. She falls, Mary Decker falls, and so live Blood loses her stride. The two fastest women lost and the winner of that gold medal was a a, a name that everyone has forgotten. The race doesn't always go to the swift. The same in the world of the military. The battle is not always to the strong. When the Russians were in retreat on the eastern front, uh, it wasn't the uh, might of the uh, military that uh, turned uh, the events of the war around uh, against the Nazis and stopped the Nazi advance—it was the Russian winter. Nor riches to the intelligent. Look at the world of university. It's not always the most academic who get the best jobs. In fact, in a recent survey among drug addicts, drug addicts living rough in London, they discovered that thirty percent of them were university graduates. Parents say, if you get a good education, that'll set you up for life. Solomon is saying, not necessarily, because there are other factors at work. Look at verse 11. Time and chance happens to all. Chance is not probably a good translation. Literally, uh, time and happenings happen to all. If we were to translate this uh, as we should, probably we'd have to translate it with an old-fashioned English word, happenstance. Happenstance and time can can change situations dramatically. Whether that's bumping into Mary Decker or a Russian winter or illness or failing your exams. Verse 12, uh, fish are caught in an evil net or birds are taken in a snare. Some... Uh, Uh, event event comes in from uh, left field and changes your plans completely. And you see that and hear of that all the time. Something happens to knock somebody off course and people will say, well, that's most unfortunate. Uncertainties of life. Faith does not guarantee success. Ability does not guarantee success. And thirdly, he tells us that opportunity doesn't guarantee success. At the end of the chapter uh, uh, in verse 13, we have this little parable. It may be that Solomon is, is thinking of an actual uh, historical event that happened during his day. It may even be that he's, <coughs> excuse me, thinking of himself. And he says there in verse 14, there was a little city with a few men in it. and a great king came against it and besieged its building. Uh, besieged it, building siege works against it, but there was found in it a poor wise man. And he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered this man. People say it's a matter of being in the right place at the right time. Uh, uh, that's what matters, that's what counts. Now here was a man who was in the right place at the right time. He lived in a small city, and a powerful king came against that city and besieged it. Now, this individual had the (coughs) wisdom to deliver the city, but it seems that no one listened to him. Verse 15, I I think, should be uh, translated with a past tense. Now, there lived a man in that city, a poor man but wise, and he could have saved the city by his wisdom. He could have saved the city, but no one listened to him. No one took into account what he was saying. They, they listened to the powerful and the influential. Verse 17, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among thorns. It was the, the ruler of this city who wasn't wise. They listened to him and the city fell. I followed with his saying, just because you have an opportunity doesn't guarantee success. People are fickle. They might accept you, uh, or and respond to you, or they might reject you and refuse to listen to you. So here are the things that we think guarantee success, but Solomon says so many things are out of our uh, control. It reminds me of the story of Daniel Peters, who for twenty years bought four lottery tickets, and after twenty years he won ten million dollars in the lottery and he got so excited he had a heart attack and died, and never benefited. From his winnings. We make our plans. We plot our future. But we discover that something happens. That turns those plans upside down. Faith doesn't guarantee success. Ability doesn't guarantee success. And opportunity doesn't guarantee success. The uncertainties of life. The second thing I want you to notice is the reality of death. Um, from verse 2 to 6. Um, Solomon talks about some event that happens to all. And the event that he has in mind, we know from verse 3, is is death. After that, he says, they go to the dead. And everybody uh, in this world will do everything they can to avoid the subject of death. The late John Betjeman in his poem, Graveyards, wrote... Oh, why do people waste their breath inventing dainty names for death? And the answer to that question is that they invent dainty names for death because they don't want to talk about death and they don't want to think about death. Yet as Derek Kidner in his commentary says, uh, death is the universal obliterator. It happens to all. I remember after my mother died, about a year after my mother died, we uh, had just pulled in as a family uh, uh, in the car to the driveway, and uh, we were all getting out of the car and the uh, a lady came walking past the end of the drive, and she stopped to speak to my father and she said, How's Mrs. Curry? Yes she hadn't heard, and I could see my 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 dad hesitating. I could hear him hesitating, but I could see the cogs turning that he was looking for some other word other than the D word to describe what happened. And he says, Oh, 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 she passed away. Passed away, passed over, passed on, gone to a better place. Anything to avoid that word. I said before that if Sex was the taboo subject of the Victorian period. Death is the taboo subject of our generation. People don't want to talk about it. Just go to a funeral. Uh, If you know that jocularity that, that you find at funerals, I was so annoyed at that. I remember when my mother, we weren't allowed to go to the funeral, but I remember going back into the home, and people were laughing and drinking and tipsy. And I I wanted to scream out, my mother has just died. But everybody was talking about everything but the elephant in the room, which was, people die. Or you go to a deathbed, you know, and the death rattle is in the throat. And people will say, how's the church going? Or, how's so-and-so? Did you get away on holidays? Anything. Anything but death that's what uh, Solomon is talking about, and he tells first of all that uh, us that death is inevitable. Look at verse verse two he says it is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who is sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice as the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as one who shares an oath. doesn't matter who you are, he says. Death can't be avoided. The righteous, the wicked, the good, the bad, the clean and the unclean. That's referring to spiritually clean and unclean. Those who offer sacrifices and those who don't offer sacrifices all die. The good, the bad, the ugly. They all die. Woody Allen once quipped, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. But you can't escape it. You will be there because death will come. You cannot keep the grim reaper at arm's length. It comes to all. I had a little chuckle to myself reading the paper this week and I saw an advert for, uh, for life insurance and it said, whether you die or live, you will benefit. Whether you die, everybody's going to die. It doesn't matter who you are, all die. There's George Bernard Shaw, the Irish playwright, who said the statistics on death are frightening. One out of one dies. We all fall down. That's what Solomon's saying. Ring a ring a rosie a pocket full of posies, a tissue, a tissue. We all fall down. That nursery rhyme came, goes back to the Black Death in the seventeenth century. It was first heard by an old man who was pushing a cart stacked high with corpses. And it was erroneously believed that the plague came through polluted air. And that if people breathed fresher air, fragrant air, they could escape it. So doctors filled their pockets with petals. And then they would go and they would sprinkle those petals around the dying person. They would blow ash into their faces to cause them to sneeze to get the infection out a tissue a tissue but nevertheless they all fell down they all died and at the end of the day when the day of death approaches we cannot stop it death says Solomon is inevitable but also he says It's empty. Look at verse 4. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing and they have no more reward. For their memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. People say while there is life there is hope. Well, that's what Solomon is saying here in verse 4. He says, even a live dog is better than a dead lion. He's not thinking of the sweet little domestic animals that we keep as pets. He's thinking of the wild, mangy, dirty, ferocious, scavenging uh, 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 scoundrels that were uh, in uh, Gehenna that were uh, uh, ravaging the Uh, rubbish and eating the dead bodies for sustenance, the Gehenna, the dump outside Jerusalem. More akin to the dingoes of Australia than to our domestic pets. And he he compares them to the king of the uh, jungle, the aristocracy of the animal kingdom, to a majestic lion. And he says, even a live dog is better than a dead lion. Better to be alive with no quality of life than to be dead, surrounded with riches, because only the living have hope. We may put it this way, better to, to live in abject poverty, in a little rat-infested uh, hovel, and live as a beggar than to be dead, led out in a coffin in a palace. He goes on and contrasts life with death in verses 5 and 6. He says, the dead know nothing. The dead have no reward. The memory of the dead is forgotten. When you're dead, you're dead. When you're dead, you're quickly forgotten. Your children will remember you fondly. Your your, uh, grandchildren will remember you nostalgically. Your uh, great-grandchildren will not even remember your name." Your emotions, your relationships, they're all forgotten. Now, this is pretty depressing stuff. He says that death has no hope, there is nothing beyond it. Now, the key to understanding what he's saying here is in verse, the last line of verse 6 in all that is done under the sun. He's, he's looking at life. From the viewpoint of the secularist, from the unbeliever. The person who has pushed God out of their thinking and pushed God out of their lives. And for such a person, he says, death is a hopeless thing. You know, the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, uh, come and they use these verses to justify their doctrine of soul sleep. That uh, there's nothing beyond the grave. But they don't understand the structure of Ecclesiastes. That this is the secularist speaking. This is life under the sun. And for those who live life under the sun without God in their thinking, life and death are hopeless. But the Christian has hope. Paul writing to the Thessalonians says, We do not grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We do grieve, but we have hope. That the Christian who dies in the Lord is absent from the body and present with the Lord. That the soul returns to the God who gave it. And uh, if you want to prove that point, just go to a funeral. Um, Go to uh, the funeral of a secularist, an unbeliever, an atheist. And then go to a Christian funeral and just see the difference. I once attended the the funeral, uh, a humanist funeral. And it was the most depressing thing that I've ever been to. They—they instead of hymns, they played Frank Sinatra. I did it my way, and then uh, the Electric Light Orchestra, Mister Blue Sky, because he had an interest in the weather. And then instead of prayers, you just bowed your head and you reflected on the, the person. It was empty. It was hopeless. It was miserable. We had two men who worked in the borstal in, in Bangor who died within two weeks of each other, and uh, so the the staff from the borstal who worked with these men, their colleagues attended these two funerals. And There were these two Catholic ladies that came to the the funeral, and they came up to me after the second funeral and said, "I've never been, never been like that at a funeral like that in my life." And I thought she was being critical, and I says, "What? What do you mean?" And she says. It was so positive. There was so much hope. It was almost like a celebration. We have hope. Death is inevitable. Death is empty. The uncertainties of life, the reality of death. Lastly, the response of faith. Now, most commentators agree that verses 7 to 10 are a special section in the chapter. If you are in the habit of marking your Bible, you could put... uh, A box around verses 7 to 10 uh, because they stand out in contrast with the rest of the chapter. In the rest of the chapter, Solomon has been standing in the shoes of the secularist, the person who has pushed God out of their lives, and it's pretty depressing stuff. It would make you want to go and jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. But in verses 7 to 10, he brings God into the picture. He admits that life is pretty meaningless without God, but with God, he says, God in your life brings joy. He takes the basic elements of life and tells tells us to view them as God's gift. Look at verse 7. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved, or God is pleased with what you do. But here's life at its very basic, eating and drinking, taking sustenance into the body. But you can do that with a merry heart because God is pleased with that. He tells us to enjoy our comforts, verse 8. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. And that might not make a lot of sense to us. in the uh, To the original readers, uh, they would have understood it like this: in the ancient East, you wore white to reflect the sun and to keep keep you warm. To wear white was to wear your good clothes. Anointing your head with oil served a twofold purpose: it freshened you up and uh, enhanced your appearance. The New Living Bible um, translates that: "Wear fine clothes with a spa- splash of cologne." I'm not sure about that, but. <clears throat> putting on your glad rags, put on your, your Levi's, put on a, a good shirt, put on a bit of aftershave, put on a bit of makeup. That's the man, me- uh, not the man, that's the woman, the woman, put on a bit of makeup. Solomon is advocating a sensible use of the comforts that God has provided. You see, in, in the ancient um, writings of the rabbis, that uh, they taught that we would be called to account for the good things that we have refused to enjoy. The good things that we have refused to enjoy. Take comfort in all that God has provided for you. Don't believe that the God who created all these beautiful things in the world doesn't want you to enjoy them. He wants you to enjoy them. You remember um, Isaac Watts, a great hymn, we're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to Zion, the beautiful city of God. Uh, the sorrows of the man of the mind be banished from this place. Religion never was designed to make our pleasures less. Enjoy your food, enjoy your comforts, enjoy your marriage, verse nine. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he that he has given you under the sun, uh, because that is your portion in life, and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Now, I'm, I'm not sure that I would want uh, Solomon to preach at my wedding, and I'm not sure I would want to take uh, uh, marital advice from him. Remember, he had all these concubines and lovers, and yet he couldn't find one trustworthy woman in a thousand, a thousand concubines, a thousand lovers, And yet, in verse 1, he tells us that he carried out a careful examination and he he came to the conclusion, better to have a wife, one wife who loves you and cares for you than to be the playboy of the ancient world. Solomon is saying, don't don't throw your marriage away. Enjoy your marriage. If If you're too busy for your wife, you're too busy. That's what he's saying. Enjoy the good gifts that God has given you. Enjoy your food, enjoy your comforts, enjoy your marriage, enjoy your work. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. In contrast to death, life, he says, should be active, energetic, practical, skillful, and useful seize the opportunities don't sit about and wait for life to unfold make it happen you know that little plaque um i love work and then underneath it in small uh, letters i could sit and watch it for hours don't be like that work is a creation ordinance um it was in place before the fall did you ever think of that that god put man to work in the garden before the fall that that um, that work is part of his identity. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your heart. That actually a contentment and a fulfillment and a peace comes through work and inquiring mind and, and, and the, uh, uh, the diligent expense uh, expending of energy brings peace. Notice, notice verse two, uh, 7 begins, Go eat your bread. That this is an imperative, this is a command. Just don't do it, but go and do it. Seize the day, seize the opportunities. Enjoy your food, enjoy your comforts, enjoy your marriage, enjoy your work. Isn't isn't this amazing? We're told that, that God has already approved or pleased with what you do. That God takes pleasure in our pleasure. Yesterday we had Christmas, we celebrated Christmas because Andrea and Sarah are going off to uh, America because of Sarah's uh, sister being so ill and, and she's heading off to America and, and, um, and we gave all the presents out yesterday and we gave uh, Anna, Anna from Frozen, the doll Frozen and she was so delighted. And you see to see the pleasure on her face Brought pleasure to us. Well, the Bible says that it's more blessed to give than receive. But God takes pleasure in the gifts that He gives to us. Isn't that amazing? He takes pleasure. And So Timothy tells us, for, or Paul tells Timothy, for everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected. It is to be received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. God doesn't want you to be miserable. God wants you to enjoy life and the good things that life um, has to offer. And he, he commands us here to go and seize those things. Don't sit back and wait for it to happen. To to go out and enjoy life. Enjoy your food, your comfort, your marriage. Make a list. Make a list of things that you want to do. You want to go to the cinema to see that film? Do it. You you, you want to have friends over and have a bit of a laugh together? Do it. You want to just uh, go to that place on holiday? Do it. Life is for living. That's Solomon's point. Enjoy life. Enjoy the gifts that God has given you. But remember that it's only in Him that you can have full enjoyment. And you can enjoy and revel in the gifts that He has given to you. That God has already approved of what you do. Back to Jody's study on Tuesday night. Paul says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. I've learned the secret. Paul, tell me what that secret is. Tell me what that secret is. I want to know the secret. Because I'm not a contented person. I'm a restless person. I'm I'm a person who gets discontented and disorientated in times. Tell, Tell me the secret, Paul. Well, here's the secret. I can do all things. Through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That with Christ in your life, He strengthens you, whether you're well fed or hungry, but He strengthens you in every situation to know the contentment that God can bring. And if you're not a Christian, you should be miserable. You should be miserable. Because what's life all about? You, 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 you live, you die, and you're forgotten. But in, in Christ, there is contentment, there is peace, and there is hope hope, the eternal hope of heaven, uh, of being forever uh, with the Lord. Life is uncertain, death is a reality. But God can give meaning and purpose in life. You you need God right at the center of your life. And the only way to have God right at the center of your life is through Jesus Christ and your trust and your faith in Him because He's the great bridge builder between man and God. He's the one who came and died upon the cross to reconcile us to God. And it's through His death that we have peace with God and it's through his death, that we can enjoy the riches of the good things that God has given for us. Enjoy your food. Are you thankful for your food? Enjoy your comforts. Uh, put on a bit of aftershave. Don't go about looking as if you've been dragged through a hedge backwards. And Enjoy the good things that God has given you. Enjoy your comforts. Enjoy your marriage. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Realize that she is the most precious thing next to salvation and Jesus Christ himself in your life. And enjoy your work. Don't don't sit about and wait for life to happen. Make it happen. Use the brains that God has given you. Use the the strength that God has given you to, to gather all these good things around you. That's the teaching of Ecclesiastes chapter 9.